Anita Abriel is well known to many readers already because of her international hit, The Light After the War. Now she returns with another World War II story, part thriller, part romance. In the US, it's called A Girl During the War, and for the rest of us, it's called The Italian Girl. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading this week, Anita talks about The Italian Girl or A Girl During the War, a coming-of-age story of stolen art and romance in a famous villa in Florence peopled with real-life historical figures. International best-selling author Kristen Harmel has called it a fast-paced and engaging read. This week's free book offer is another book sweeps draw, Wine and Dine Literary Book Club offer. It'll be the sort of books that we often feature on the show, including one of mine. So if you think that's to your taste, get in there and enter. It's only open until the end of this month, so do it today. Anita is also in the five quickfire questions, Patreon-only bonus content this week. Become a supporter and help support the show and hear her answers to questions like what she tell her 18-year-old self and whose shoes she'd like to fill if she could have one day living someone else's life. If you particularly like this episode but don't feel committed to doing something long-term like Patreon, then buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Jenny Wheel and then a big X like a cross, like a kiss Jenny Wheel X Links to all the information mentioned in this show can be found in the show notes as usual But now, here's Anita Hello there Anita and welcome to the show It's great to have you with us Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jenny. I'm just delighted to be here. Look, you're fast making a reputation for yourself as one of the go-to authors for wartime women's fiction. Your last book, A Light After the War, got rave reviews from fellow authors like Pam Genoff and Kirsten Hamill. And now we're talking about the new one, which here in our part of the world is called the Italian girl, but I think in the US it's got the name of a girl during the war. Is that right? That's correct. And it kind of follows on from a light after the war so that I guess they're hoping readers will make the connection with your other book. Correct. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's sometimes a little bit confusing for international readers when they see two titles like that. They're not sure if it's a different book or the same one. I know. I feel bad about that, you know, because I hate for anyone to be confused or to buy the same book twice because I think I've actually done that before myself. (laughs) But, you know, each publisher decides what to call it. So I do love the title, The Italian Girl. I think it's a a perfect title for the book. Yeah, And I adore the cover. It's a really nice one. Now, your your central character in this book is an art expert called Marina, and she has to flee Rome when the Nazi occupation is occurring because her father gets into trouble there and she's left in a great deal of danger. 
and she flees to Bernard Berenson's villa in Florence, Itati. Now, Berenson is a huge name in Renaissance art history, and there might be some people who aren't particularly familiar with that. So I thought we might just start there and ask you to fill in a little bit of the background for the story. Well, there's a fascinating amount of the story is actually true and uh, with real people. And, it, you know, in, in historical fiction, you start out by going down a rabbit hole of research and end up not at all where you expected with all these people that you'd never met, never heard of. And it started for me with learning that only one bridge was left um, standing after the German occupation, and that was the Ponte Vecchio. And the Germans blew up all the other bridges in Florence because they wanted to uh, slow down the allies who were coming back to take the city after the German occupation. And Gerard Wolf, even though he was the German consul, he was he came to Flo- to Florence because he loved the Italian Renaissance. He was a great lover of Renaissance art, and he was not a fan of the Nazis. And he only joined the Nazi Party to further his career because he had no other choice. And so he had a great friend who was Bernard Berenson, who owned a villa outside of Florence named Itati, which is now is owned today by Harvard. And you can go there. They have groups there they, and, and study the Italian Renaissance. And Bernard Berenson was the most renowned art historian of his day. And valuing of a piece of artwork could change the price. I mean, completely changed the price of of the art. And so he was extremely well-known. He was American by birth, and he lived there in Florence for at least 20 years, if not more, at the villa. So it's remarkable, all of the things. And then the character Ludwig is also, who ran the Institute in the book, was also a real character, And that was also a real institute. And then the last crazy part is that Bernard's, he was married, but it was, you know, sort of a marriage by name only. And his partner, for want of a better word, for at least 30 years, was a woman named Belle DaCosta Green, who was J.P. Morgan's personal librarian and was extremely well known in her own right as being, he, she bought all of the things in J.P. Morgan's private library and then went on to buy and sell illuminated manuscripts and other artwork for the rest of her life. Yes, there's a very fascinating range of real-life characters there. Tell us a little bit more about the significance of there being one bridge left. How did that impact on the story? Well, there there is a part of the story, which, you know, I won't, I don't want to give anything away, no. where it is sort of a central part of the story, that happening. And I think for anybody who's been to Florence, who, who's seen Florence, even in pictures, who knows Florence, the thought, you know, Florence, the Ponte Vecchio is such a beautiful bridge, and it's been there since the 15th century. You know, artists, that's where they, it's not just a bridge to walk over, that's where artisans had their shop and still do. You know, all the vendors have their shops on the bridge and you'd shop on them. So to think that all of those bridges were blown up is 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 unthinkable. And it is why the war was so difficult on so many levels, because it, it wasn't 
only about the terrible cost of life, though, of course, that is the most terrible part. And my parents are both Holocaust survivors, so I know it, you know, as as well and better than anyone. But there was so much art lost and so much, much architecture. And, you know, there were so many other things that were, were lost. Yes, yes. With so much real life in this, how did you handle the balance between real life and fiction? And were there any particular points where you felt torn between fictionalizing or keeping the truth? That's a really great question. And I I think, you know, in any historical fiction, the minute you start writing about these characters, in some way they become yours. Yes. And, you know, they may be real, but they're your real. (laughs) And it is fiction, so you can... You can play with it in terms of you can, you know, give them conversations. You can give them, you know, where they live, what they do, what they wear, what they're thinking. You can give them all those things while still remembering that they're real. So you you don't go too far outside of the lines. But it's a really wonderful thing, I think, because, you know, it's so everything is so real in my head that to to sort of just kind of go that extra level and know that they, you know, that they did live in Florence, then they they did, you know, communicate with each other, just makes it just kind of that much more enjoyable to write, to get yes. to know these characters. Yes. One of the reviews used the phrase that your Marina is, quotes, a young woman of modern sensibilities. And I wondered if the way that she behaves is typical of a young woman of that time, or whether you maybe gave her a slightly more modern uh, approach than she might have really had in the 1940s. They, the, the, she may have had a more modern approach in that she really wanted to own her art, her own art gallery, you know, and many of the women then, of course, still prioritized, you know, family, marriage and family, but she did get that love from her father and she lost her mother at a young age. So, you know, she would have sort of looked at her father for the satisfaction in life. And while he loved her more than anything, and that's, you know, really obvious in the short time that we know him and then in her, you know, flashbacks about him. But he also really loved his art gallery. So she sort of inherited that from him. So that I think was more modern. And perhaps, you know, in a way that she behaved with Carlos, she was a little bit modern in her thinking. But again, during the war, I think many girls were modern in their thinking because all the rules had been thrown out. Yes, sure. And they didn't know what the next day was going to bring. It was a very different world in a sense. She also had Bella Costa Green as a bit of a role model, didn't she? And I mean, that's one real life woman that we can know had an extremely uh, glass ceiling breaking approach to life. I mean, I read a little bit about her and, and she was actually born into a black family, but she was light-skinned and she presented herself as white and she she reached remarkable heights. I mean, she became really one of the world's acknowledged experts on illuminated manuscripts when she had perhaps not such a great start in life. Oh, exactly. She had an amazing story and she she was a rule breaker, groundbreaker in every way. I mean, to, you know, to be born, like you said, you know, black parents and to to even, you know, be with the people that she mingled with and then to have really so much power within her world, within the art world was really remarkable. And Mm. she also had, you know, many lovers. And so she, I think, was an inspiration to Maureen in that way. She was free of anybody. She didn't depend on anybody for for money, 
for her sort of personal satisfaction. She she created her life just the way she wanted it. Mm. There's a very strong sense of a deep understanding of Renaissance art that comes through in the work. I mean, without it all being boring, there's lots of details about particular artworks that Marina's presented with. And I wondered... Were you already quite an expert in that area yourself before you began this book, or did you have to do all that research for this book? Another great question. Not not an expert at all. And a lover of it for sure, and been to Venice and Florence as a, as a, and Rome as a child. But no, not not an expert at all. Always had a real appreciation, but there was a lot of digging down different rabbit holes and a lot of you know, studying the different museums and what they all held and who were my favorite artists and, you know, the the lesser known ones and the lesser known paintings of each one. So yes, an awful lot of research on that front. And part of one of the underlying themes of the book is about the way that the Nazis were pilfering um, Italian art and taking it back to Germany. And I know there's been a couple of movies about that whole aspect of the stealing of art. Has this become something that we've been slightly more aware of in the last decade or so than before? I mean, I think that, you know, perhaps too, as many of the survivors die off, you know, including my parents, you know, because they just get old, we hear less of their stories personally and more about other things. And so, you know, this is a a topic that is, the knowledge isn't just all based on, you know, I hid in the cellar. It's, you know, this piece of art went missing and, and this is how it was retrieved or it wasn't retrieved. And so, yes, I think it definitely has become a more popular topic in, in recent years. And for the reason I mentioned before, because it just shows a different aspect, another aspect of the war, of what the war, what Hitler could have done and did do. Yeah. How much of that art is has been found? Is there a lot of it that's still missing? I mean, it's sort of impossible to know because, you know, things turn up and you didn't know they were missing because there is just so much art. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd say kind of both. <laughs> Yeah. And the latter part of the story takes place in Argentina, where many Nazis escaped to after the war. And in your first book, The Light After the War, which I'd like to talk about a little bit in a minute, that ends in Venezuela. So in both your books, you've got stories ending in or, or going into South America. And once again, I had a real sense that you had a, an appreciation of Argentina in this book. You, did, I guess you did visit there to research that side of it, did you? I have never been to South oh. America, so thank you for that. Really? <laughs> it was very convincing. <laughs> thank you. I do really appreciate that, actually. My mother did end up in Venezuela, so she did definitely tell stories about Venezuela. But And I've you know, kind of been fascinated with South America because of that. But yeah, I've never been to either place. Okay, that that brings us to the light after the war because it is an incredibly personal story. It was based on your mother's story of escaping um, the the Nazis and finally, as you say, finding her way to South America. Tell us a bit about that book and how it came to be written. Well, that really started me on the historical fiction um, path. Before that, I was writing contemporary women's fiction under my married name, which is Anita Hughes. And I have almost 20 books written under that name. 
And then my mother died from Alzheimer's about 10 years ago. And I really wanted to write her story. I, I adored my mother. I think she was very strong and she was just a wonderful woman and really encouraged me in my writing. And I really felt ready to, to write it. And it was really quite an incredible experience. I kept everything. I mean, even the names are all real. You know, her name and her parents and her best friend, Edith, and everything was real. And everything that happened, almost every single thing that happened really happened. You know, she escaped and then ended up in Naples and then Ellis Island and then Venezuela. And, you know, when I told somebody about the story, they're like, no, you can't write that. That couldn't happen. That's not real. You know, this or that part's not real. Uh, well, yes, it is real. It did happen. <laughs> so that kind of gives you the, this might be a good story for others to hear too. And I learned many things in the writing of it that how I feel about, you know, being Jewish and and how I feel about the war and and how I feel you know, about growing up as the child of a survivor, it really sort of crystallized a lot of those emotions for me that I didn't know I had. So it was a really wonderful experience. You yourself, you were born in Sydney and now you live in California. Help to place yourself against the background of your mother's story because we, she was born in Germany, is that right? Hungary. Hungry and escaped. So did she end up in Sydney? She ended up in Sydney, yes. And that's where we were, where she married and and I was born and raised. And in a very, you know, in the eastern suburbs, which was very Jewish. I mean, not completely, obviously, but many survivors, many. So, you know, Double Bay at the time, you know, was full of Hungarian and Czech and Austrian and and people. And I think they're still, you know, all the kids are still there. And so, so yes, it was a very Jewish upbringing, you know, child of a survivor upbringing. Yes. Yeah. You've mentioned that you have written, you'd already written 20 contemporary fiction books under your maiden name, I guess that was. Under my married name. That was your married name. How did you get into writing initially then? What was there a once upon a time moment when you thought, oh, I've just got to be a writer? I mean, how did it happen? There was definitely a once upon a time moment. When I was eight years old, I entered the Australian newspaper's national poetry competition. And they would have like once a week or once a month, they had a winner in your age group. And then they had a, a winner of all those eight, you know, of all those months. And I won the whole thing. <laughs> and um, they, in my age group, and they had your picture in the paper. And it, uh, you know, I think I won $25, got one, bought shoes. And I said, I want to be a writer. Yeah. And I actually sent off a full novel to an editor at Harper and Row at the time when I was in high school here in America. And I got a revision letter, which is, you know, really amazing. But being very new to America and desperately wanting to be, you know, the Brady Bunch, I became a cheerleader because, of course, we didn't have those in Australia and didn't never did the revisions. <laughs> <laughs> Probably didn't appreciate just how significant that was. Oh, my gosh. You know, if I'd, I'd run back there in a minute and tell that teenager, do the revisions. <laughs> Tell us what was different in these two books. I mean, the first one was so personal and and so much close to a memoir, and then the second one entirely your imagination. How was the process different in in writing them? And there is another one. There's also Lana's War, which came out last year, which was also 
you know, based on real facts, but, you know, also made up. It was really wonderful writing my mother's story, you know, especially because she's dead. And so it really felt, made me feel close to her. But I love to write and I love to tell new stories. And I love delving, you know, even deeper into that time period and what others went through. So I enjoy whatever I write, but there, there is nothing more special than to tell your mother's story. And I have five children of my own. So to tell it and to leave it for them is also really special. Yeah. I guess it was perhaps sad that she wasn't here to see it once. Oh, it was so sad. If you look, the dedication to every single one of my books is just to my mother. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, in my acknowledgements, I thank my children and this and that. But every dedication is just. Yeah. Turning away from the specific books and looking at your wider career, if there was one thing that you've done more than any other that would see the secret of your success, what is what would it be in the creative writing area? Wow, that is a really good question. That would that you think that what do you mean exactly? One thing, would it a, a talent, somebody that you met significantly like, a mentor, was there a turning point somewhere where you might have been just about at the point of giving up and the door was open for you, something like that? I honestly think that my mother used to say when I was young, you just kind of turn it on and won't turn itself off. I honestly think that many writers are born to write, you know, you start by reading nonstop and, and I read every, everything, you know, I've read everything <laughs> in college. I read everything and I still do read, I read two or three books a week. So you, I think you really have to have a love of literature, both reading and writing. And then it just eventually comes. Yeah. So what was the very first book that you ever wrote? I've, apart from, you know, maybe your teenage one, what was the first book that got published? So in America, it's called Monarch Beach. And in Australia, it was called The Beach Holiday. And it was came out 12 years ago. Exactly, actually. And a contemporary romance or co- contemporary women's yes, fiction? Yes, contemporary yeah. women's fiction is yeah. what they call it. Yeah. yeah. Great. When you started out writing, what was your main goal? And have you already achieved it or even majorly surpassed it? <laughs> I think the problem with being a writer is you never feel like you're successful. You, you never feel like it's enough. I do think that getting The Light After the War on the bestseller list in Australia was a huge achievement for me and very special. And you know, now I can say I'm a national bestseller, but really more than that, just to, to you know, because I used to go to the bookshop. There was a bookshop, Leslie McKay's bookshop, that I used to go to every day you know, as a child and actually worked there for a year when I was about 21 and, you know, I just adored it. So I'm a huge book lover. So that was a big achievement. I really appreciated that. Oh, look, that's fabulous. Turning to Anita as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading. We like to ask you what your own reading tastes are and if you've got anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners. So tell us about your reading life. Are there any books that really stand out for you? You know, my reading life is so, I I do read just fiction and it's just so varied. I did just read The Maid, which I'm sure is out in in Australia and New Zealand, which I did think was absolutely fantastic. She's just a brilliant writer and just such a likable heroine. So I adored that. 
I know that Sally Hepworth, her new book came out in America yesterday. And I really loved her last one, which I think was called The Mother-in-Law. So that that was really great. And yeah, I mean, you know, actually I'm off to the library after this to pick up two because I, I, I can't always afford the books to get a couple of new ones. So I have, I always generally have about 25 books on hold at the library because I put them on hold before they come out. Yeah, <laughs> that's lovely. That's lovely. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career you'd change, what would it be? Start earlier. You know, I raised my children for uh, until 12 years ago. So for, you know, 22 years and, and didn't write, you know, until I was well into my late 40s. And, you know, now knowing that a, how much I love it, and B, that you actually can get published because, of course, you never believe that you will actually get published. I would definitely have given it a shot earlier. Yes. Yeah, that's great. What is next for Anita as author? What have you got on your desk over the next 12 months, either books that are coming out or books you're working on? So working on a couple of things at the moment, but they're at the stage, so it's still in my head don't want to give it away just yet but definitely more historical fiction and then uh i do have another you know christmas book uh, contemporary fiction coming out in september and that's under the name of anita hughes is it correct yes yeah uh-huh. so you're still maintaining that yeah name. yeah yeah because i i love because i just love the writing and and one book a year is not enough <laughs> Yeah, that's great. So you deliberately have got a different pen name for your historical fiction and your contemporary fiction. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, again, when I wrote my mother's book, I, I wanted to, I took back my maiden name because I wanted to really feel close to her. And I think it works for readers to, to yes. know what they're picking up. Yes, that's right. And the historical ones that you've got on the go, are they... World War Two ones as well. I, definitely historical fiction. Okay. That's, yeah. That's what Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, that's my favorite part. I mean, you just absolutely glow when you know that somebody knows your characters, that they liked or disliked them or just were invested in some way. So my website for the historical fiction is anitaabriel.com. And for the contemporaries, anitahughesbooks.com. Look, it's interesting. You know, they talk about an author voice. Do you think that you have the same author voice for your contemporary and your historic fiction? Would people recognize that voice over the whole spread of your work? That's a really great question. In some ways, absolutely. All of my books are filled with beauty, a little bit of fashion, food, glamour, because I like those things and they, they come out. Obviously, the contemporary fiction is a lot lighter and there's more humor because there's just not much humor in in the war. But yes, I think they would, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been thinking a bit about that thing of voice lately and wondering you know, how consistent it was. So that's really, really interesting. Well, look, it's been fantastic talking. Thank you so much for your time, Anita. Wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Just, it's just such a treat. 
Next week on Binge Reading, Santa Montefiore. She's a queen of women's fiction. She's sold six million copies worldwide of her heartwarming sagas that have been described as beach read blockbusters. She's published a book a year since 2001, and we're talking to her about her latest books, two of them actually, she's such a high producer, An Italian Girl in Brooklyn, which is a standalone World War II story of loss and restoration, and the latest in her hugely popular Irish historical series, The Deverell Family, this one's called The Distant Shore. That's next week on The Joys of Binge Reading.